If you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, either on your smart device, iPad, um, or just a hard copy analog, uh, we are going to put the text up on the screen for you. If you don't own a Bible at all, we'd love to outfit you with one, and you just simply have to, at the close of the service, just walk over to the Commons, which is our bookstore in the middle of our campus, tell the staff there you'd like one of the free Bibles, and we'll get one of those to you. If you have missed any of the services or sermons in our study in Mark, you can go to redemptionaz.com and watch any of the sermons and kind of catch up where we've been, and I would really encourage you to do that so when you're here on Sunday, you can be tracking with us where we are. Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be in verse 7 through 19 today. That's our section today. Let's read through it, and then we'll pray and ask God to help us understand it. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Cananean, your version might say the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this this morning. Father God, thank you for a time like this where we can open up your word freely and read from it. Here, God, I pray from you this morning. God, I thank you that you've already allowed us uh, just to say these true things, to sing these true things to you and about you. God, I pray that um, those songs have done a work to kind of cultivate our hearts and get us ready, God, for, um, for the word to be planted in them. God, I, I always pray for your help, and again, I come. Holy Spirit, I pray for the gift of preaching. God, I pray that you would remove distractions in this place for the next moment here while we open your word. God, um, these times are never about a person. Uh, God, they're always about you. And so, God, I pray that you would be front and center. God, I pray that you would be made much of and magnified. God, I pray for those who do not yet know you. God, I pray today that you would open eyes. God, that you would breathe life where there's death. In your name we pray. Amen. So far in the ministry of Jesus, what we've seen in our study in Mark, we've seen him proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. That's a major theme already in the book of Mark, continues to be a theme in this narrative. Um, it is, in essence, a call to freedom for, for many. We've seen freedom from disease or infirmary, freedom from demonic possession, freedom in the form of forgiveness of sins, freedom from self-righteousness and religion as a means to earn favor and approval of God. And freedom in a new future that's found in following Jesus. What we're seeing is kind of this cosmic revolution of Jesus Christ who is the coming king. 
two major themes that we've seen so far already in the book of Mark. The first is we've seen the divinity of Christ, and we've also seen the authority of Christ. The divinity and the authority of Christ. We've seen his divine identity being established as the Lord, the King. He is Yahweh. He's the Son of God. He's the Holy One of God. We've heard those titles. We see his authority in his power to heal sick, uh, to cast out demons, to preach the good news with profound power. He teaches like no one else has ever taught, but also to forgive sins. And so with verse 7 in chapter 3, we see another theme that gets introduced in the book of Mark, and it's a major theme, and it's the theme of true Christian discipleship. Or what does it really look like? Or what's it really mean to follow Jesus? Mark, we're going to see, is he's very concerned of what true following looks like. The, 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 the section that we have is kind of broken up in, into two sections this morning. And it's kind of summed up like this. Jesus is recreating his own people, his chosen people, with the calling of the 12. If you kind of wanted the summation line, that's it. Jesus is recreating his own people with the calling of the 12. And this is not like the NFL draft that's going to happen in a few days. It's not like picking teams for dodgeball where like the GM or, you know, like the coach is going to try to pick the biggest kids on the playground. It's more profound than that. It's a recreation and a reconstituting of God's chosen people. And it centers on this truth, and I love this truth, that Jesus calls ordinary people to himself in order to create his extraordinary church. Jesus calls ordinary people, calls them to himself in order to create his extraordinary church. Two scenes. Uh, We see in verse 7 through 12, we see the care of Christ. The care of Christ in verse 7 through 12. And in verse 13 through 19, we see the call of Christ, and then through those, we're going to examine the C, the the church of Christ. There's liberal use of alliteration today. You're going to have a lot of C words. My Southern Baptist parents will be very proud of me. All right, let's start with this first section, the care of Christ. We actually have to back up to verse 6 a little bit to get some context. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. If you remember from last week, uh, Tim ended and, and, and Jesus had confounded the Pharisees yet again. And this time he had really steamed their clams because they said, okay, we are going to kind of figure out a way to kill him. And so they meet with this hated political group known as the Herodians, and they were scheming to kill Jesus because Jesus was really upsetting the balance and the control that they had over people. They had this real kind of cherished lifestyle, and, 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 and Jesus was upsetting all of that. So they said, okay, it's time to finally get rid of this Jesus. And so it's likely that that tension has kind of moved him out of the city and into the wilderness a bit. In verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And, and when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So you could just kind of read all those cities and kind of skip over that, but that's significant because it shows the vast appeal of, of Jesus across geographic and ethnic boundaries. Idumea, for instance, is 120 miles due south of where Jesus was at this time. So you have people that are traveling that far just to hear or see this great teacher. But more important than the distance traveled, we see Jesus is transcending the different social stigmas of the day. 
You have Galilee and you have Judea and Jerusalem as primarily Jewish areas. You have Jordan and Idumea are kind of Jewish and Gentile kind of blended regions. But Tyre and Sidon, they're almost exclusively Gentile regions. So you have all these different people coming together. And, and Jews and Gentiles are coming from all around to see the Savior. And in some way, we see this as a fulfillment of what prophets like Isaiah spoke about when they said that there's going to be someone who is going to be a light to the nations. And Jesus here is transcending social stigmas as people from all walks of life are coming to him. And in those first four verses, we see something pretty significant. So in verse 8, I want you to notice that we see that the crowd, the people that are coming, they're focused primarily on what Jesus is doing. They're there for the miracles. These are the people who uh, Jesus is doing some incredible things. He's healing. They, they typically want something just from Jesus. In verse 9, we see that Jesus is very focused on what he came to do. He came to preach. And so even though the crowd is coming, it doesn't derail him from what his mission is, from what he knows that he's here to do, to preach the good news of who he is and what he's come to do. Verse 10, we see that even despite Jesus is, is focused on what he's doing, verse 9, and his preaching, he, he is still compassionate. His preaching ministry doesn't trump his mercy ministry. He still is healing. He's still casting out demons. He's still doing that work, helping and assisting these people. In verse 11 and 12, Jesus remains firm in silencing the demons. There's this motif in the book of Mark of, of silence. So we've seen this already. Jesus will heal a man. They say, okay, don't tell anybody. He'll cast out demons and he tells the demons, you need to be quiet. And the reason that he silenced the demons and the people in part is because Jesus, he wants to define his lordship in his own terms. He wants to define his identity and reveal his identity on his own terms. And he also knows that if a bunch of demons start shouting out, hey, this is the son of God, everybody, and the people who are healed, they start kind of freaking out, in which they do. He knows what's going to happen. In fact, it does happen a little later. They try to make him a political king that, that might overthrow their government. But, but Jesus didn't come to be a political king. He came as the king of kings the ultimate spiritual king of his people. Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, any time in the scripture when you see God on a mountain, it should pique your interest. Because normally it's up on mountains that God utters his divine revelation. He reveals himself in a profound way. So if you look back to Exodus chapter 19, he has this interaction with Moses. It's like that. So anytime you're reading through the scripture, you see God on a mountain, pay attention. Because God's about to reveal something about himself there. So he's up on the mountain and he calls to him, the scripture says, those whom he desired. Now, that's significant because in those days, rabbis or teachers like Jesus was, they didn't call disciples. What normally happened is that disciples or followers, it's just really another word for follower or learner, but these followers, they would apply to a specific rabbi or teacher, like you might apply to a college. And, and, and then after they would make their application, they'd have to pass certain tests in order to actually get to the point where they were allowed to follow this rabbi. But notice with Jesus, he's not there kind of sifting through the applicants. He calls his own to himself. He called to him whom he desired, and they came to him. The initiative belongs to Jesus. And verse 14 tells us why. And he appointed 12 whom he named apostles. It's kind of a non-technical word for missionary there. So, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. This is why he called them. So that they might be with him, and then they might send him out to preach and cast out demons. 
This is kind of the purpose statement for Jesus' followers. Another thing to note in, in verse 14 and 16 is the number of followers called. There's 12. Now, this might not mean much to us. You think, well, Jesus just kind of wanted a, you know, a nice even number. And, you know. but, but, but the first century Jew reading this would make the connection to the 12 tribes of Israel. They wouldn't have missed that. They wouldn't have skipped over that. There seems to be this fulfillment of restoration of the nation of Israel, of God's chosen people. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus talks about a coming day of judgment. And on this day of judgment, there will be people sitting next to him. And those people are the apostles, not the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel, but apostles. So what we're seeing here is God's recreating, again, his reconstituting of God's chosen people, beginning with these 12 apostles. And this call is extraordinary because it comes from an extraordinary God. But if we work through the names on the list, it's a very ordinary list made up of extremely ordinary people. So if you were a human resources consulting firm hired to assess these prospects, you might write up something that sounds a little bit like this. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you are undertaking. Sounds kind of like the pastors here. <laughs> they do not have the team concept, and we would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. And we feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew, the tax collector, has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical political leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. But one of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of great ability and resourcefulness. He interacts with people well. He has a keen business mind and contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. We wish you success in your new venture. That's stupid, but what it does illustrate, <laughs> what it does illustrate is how ordinary these men are, and in some ways, how strange their selection would have been. So, so you, you've got four of them that were commercial fishermen. One of them was a hated tax collector. Remember our lesson we learned about Matthew, Levi? And he was despised by all people. One of them was a radical political nationalist, the zealot. And the other six we virtually know nothing about. But what is unique, I think, and I, I really like this, is that Jesus is able to unify such seemingly different people across the span. So if you just take Matthew and you take Simon the Zealot, right? So Matthew, traitor to his own people, Simon, intense nationalist to his people. But yet God is able to uh, unify them. For, for three years, they walked together. Could you imagine the conversations they had? There's on total opposite ends of the spectrum, but yet under Christ, they were able to come together. And, I, and that's something that we see, and that's something that we celebrate in the church, even in this room right now. We're able to see just kind of how vast differences in background and socioeconomic and, and kind of all of our stories, but yet under Christ, he brings us together. We see ordinary men that are really hardly worth mentioning. But that's who Jesus calls to himself, to establish the foundation of his church that will display his glory to the ends of the earth. 
What's inter interesting about this to me is that the men individually do not receive as much recognition as the corporate group of them do. So, so in other words, Mark, he, he doesn't talk about them individually that much, but when they are doing things with Jesus, he often refers to them as the 12. The 12 went here, the 12 did this, the 12 were with him. 12 ordinary men called to establish the extraordinary church of Christ. This, this is incredibly freeing to us, and here's why. Because it teaches us that obscurity does not mean that your life is empty. Obscurity does not mean that your life is empty. And if that's true, then you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself a few questions. One of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, is our desire for being known for what we do greater than our appreciation and thankfulness for being fully known by Jesus? Is it more important for me to be known for what I have done or achieved or who I know or what I own? Is that more important to me than the, than the reality or the truth that I am fully known by God? I, I think you have to ask yourself, is your idol of reputation, is your idol of reputation, your name being known, more important to you than your relationship with Christ and his people? And if you have a hard time answering that, just ask, like, what kind of sacrifices do you make for Christ and his people versus the sacrifices you make to build your own reputation, to make your own name famous? But let's be encouraged by this text that God likes to choose ordinary people, ordinary people that rarely receive mention, they labor in obscurity, they labor in faithfulness that isn't seen or written about. But the Bible tells us that we are a part of this corporate identity church. First Peter says this about us, that we are a chosen people, a priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Is that title good enough for you? God's special possession? So that we might proclaim and demonstrate the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What else do you need? You, you might live an unnoticed life of faithful service individually, and that's okay, because you're a part of the church. You're a part of God's chosen people, and the church never works in obscurity because the scripture says that the church is advancing in such a way that the gates of hell will not stand against it. We see the care of Christ, we see the call of Christ, now we're gonna use those filters and we're gonna examine the church of Christ. We see in this section there are three truths that are important to followers of Jesus. The first is that Christ calls the church. The only, we see this in verse 13, the only reason that these men come to Christ is because of God's sovereign call on their lives. And God's sovereign call is a beautiful thing because it takes these 12 outsiders, shunned by society and by the religious elite, and Jesus brings them close, he brings them to himself, calls them by name. Now notice in this experience, it doesn't make them prideful or arrogant because it is an extremely humbling experience in reality for them. And it should be for us as well. Our, our belief and understanding of God's election and his calling of his followers, his sons and daughters, it should never elicit pride it should take us to our knees. It should fill our hearts, our mouths, our lives with praise and thanksgiving. And it should bring about in us, as people of God, an active imitation of his mercy in your life. Now, if you're, if you're here and, and you think, well, okay, so far you're talking to a bunch of 
Christian people, or you're talking to the church. What if I'm, what if I'm not a Christian? Here's, here's what I think. We might not be on a, on a physical mountain this morning, but, but I believe that God is calling to you from the mountain this morning. And, and here's why. Because I believe that anytime the word of God goes out, whether it's through preaching, whether it's through song, I think anytime the word of God goes out, it's always powerful and it's always effective. Not, certainly not because of me, but because the spirit of God is always calling people to God, calling people to surrender a life of, of living for yourself, to surrender and lay down your life of clamoring for all the false things that this life props up that you have to have that will inevitably fail you, that will always crush you, that will always let you down, that will always lie to you, that will always take more than they promise. If that's you here this morning, I think the Spirit of God is talking to you and telling you to surrender that life and follow Christ. Follow a life of freedom and joy and hope that's only found in Jesus. What does that calling look like? What exactly is that calling? If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. I'm skipping ahead. Tim loves it when I, when I teach passages that he has to teach later. It's really great. Mark chapter 8, look at verse 34. And because Jesus describes for us what this calling or what this life of following actually looks like. He, he paints this incredible picture in Mark chapter 8. Look at verse 34. And calling to the crowd, to him with his disciples, he said to, him, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be a follower, whoever wants to be a pursuer of Jesus, not just a consumer, and a consumer is just someone who's in it for them, their own agenda. Consumer is just a taker. They don't care about the mission. They don't care about the person. The consumer is just all about them. But if you want to be a follower, not a consumer, Jesus says, I'm your life. Not just something that you add to your life. I'm not just a sidecar. I'm not just a Sunday morning experience. I'm not just something that you sprinkle on top. I am your life. And Jesus says, if you want to truly be a follower of me from time to time, you're going to have to do some things. For instance, you're going to have to deny yourself. Now, denying yourself is not just something that's only church people do. It's not just this kind of super theological practice. If you've ever been out to dinner and you eat your dinner and they come by with a dessert and you say, oh no, sorry, I couldn't eat anymore. Right? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but you can actually, you can actually say no to dessert. But if you, if you, that's denying yourself. Now, saying no to sweets does not make you a follower of, of Jesus, right? But to deny yourself simply means you say no to you. Something is presented, you look at it, and you decide, that's not best for me right now. I say no to me. I deny myself. And Jesus says there will be intersections, there will be points in your life where what I want for you and what you want for you are going to be different. And you're going to have to decide at that moment whether you're going to be a consumer or a taker or you're going to be a follower. If you're going to be a follower, you're going to have to say no to you. And Jesus says to the crowd, look, I don't want you to miss where this is going. This is very important. He says, if you follow me, then from now on, you've got to take up your cross. He's not talking about jewelry. He is talking about the most gruesome, horrific form of torture that humans had developed at that time. 
When we think cross now, it's a symbol in front of our church. You know, it's in the title of the songs we sing. It's a tattoo on youth pastors, you know, like. But here in cross, they wouldn't have missed this because the Roman government would leave these up to, to terrify people into submission. And Jesus says, following me is going to cost you something. Now, if you're in this audience and you're hearing this, you're scared to death. And this is where you start to kind of like sneak out the back, right? They're just like us. The tough gets going. We just get going away, right? And Jesus says, before you leave, before you get too worried, let me put the invitation to follow me and pursue me in the broader context. Listen to what Jesus says to this crowd worried about what it's going to cost to follow him. Look at verse 35. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is brilliant, right? And he's laying out a principle for these people, something that we know full well. He says, no matter how much you take care of yourself, you will lose your life. He says, whoever sees me and pursues me will save their life. If you follow me, Jesus says, and you lose something that you were going to lose anyway, like relationship or status or popularity or stuff or temporary pleasure, he says, if you lose it for my name's sake and for the sake of the good news of who I am, Jesus says, you're saving your life. If you say no to you and you say yes to me, you're saving your life. What seems like a loss is really no loss at all because you were going to lose it anyway. And Jesus says, I'm giving you the opportunity to lose it with a purpose, to lose it with meaning attached to it. And then he asks them a very important question in verse 36. He says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The word forfeit means to give up, to lose. So let's imagine this scenario. You had everything and you had everybody. You had every opportunity, you had every experience. People look at you and they think, man, they've got it all. That is it. That is the ideal life. That's what you would want. Jesus says, what good is it at the end of this most awesome life that you've dreamed up for yourself? You lose or you give away your soul. They're kind of thinking about that. And Jesus goes on to verse 37. He says, for what can a man give in return for his soul? What would you exchange for your soul? You're at the end of your awesome life, and it occurs to you that you will go into eternity where you've traded away your soul. What would you give? Everything, right? What good is it to have everything and lose your soul? No good. What would you give that you will lose anyway in exchange for your soul? Everything. Jesus says, what did you just discover about yourself? You consider your soul of greater value than anything you'll ever have or anyone you'll ever know. Okay, so, so what's the point? What's, what's he getting at here with this, with this following thing, with the call of Christ? What is it? Salvation is free. It costs us nothing. Let's be extremely clear about that. Becoming a child of God costs us nothing because at the cross of Jesus Christ, everything was paid. And you come to him not based on something you do, not for cleaning up your act. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It is by grace alone, the unmerited favor of God alone that God supplies. Through faith, also supplied by God. In Christ, who is God, right? So salvation, becoming a Christian, is absolutely free. 
But what we're drilling down on here is that following or pursuing Christ in this life and in this generation is going to eventually cost you something. In other words, at some point in your journey, there's going to be a conflict of interest and you'll have a decision to make. Some of you, you might have a decision to make today. At that moment, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like you either have to do or do not do the thing that you're presented with. Your conscience will come alive. The Spirit of God in you will lead your decision, and you'll know, if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to pursue Christ, if I'm going to obey the call of God in my life, this is what I must do or not do. It might be a relationship that you need to end, a job you need to leave, a conversation you need not be in. It might be a sin you need to confess, a behavior or an attitude that you need to repent of. You'll know when it happens, this is that thing. Salvation is free, but following Christ will always cost you something. This is the scary part, right? This is, this is the part that's like, oh, everything felt pretty good up until this. Because you're asking questions, right? You're like, well, what about my... What about my friends? For some of you, what about your family? What about my fun? That was the question I asked. What about my plans for the future? Jeremiah 29, 11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. This verse is great. When everything's kind of going your way, you love it. You know, it's on your coffee mug. That's great. You dig it. But where this verse is most powerful and most needed is when you deny yourself to follow Christ. And believe me, those times are coming if they haven't already, and it will be emotional. It'll feel like a death. It'll feel like a little funeral to an idea or a plan or a relationship. But you will discover who you really belong to, and you will experience the joy, the radical joy of pursuing Christ and the faithfulness of your Heavenly Father. On January 8th in 1956, there were five missionaries who said yes to Jesus. Said, I'm going to obey the call of Jesus on my life. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Nate Saint, and Raji Adarian. They were going to a, a specific people group in Ecuador, the Aka Indians. But on that date, they were martyred. They were killed. Many of those Indians became Christians later on. But Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries who was killed there, he has this quote. It's probably his best-known quote. He says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see how brilliant Jesus is? Jesus teaches that principle. A man dedicates his life to that principle. And we're here talking about a man who obeyed the call of Christ in his life. We see that Christ calls his church, Christ centers his church. In verse 14, we see how he centers his church. Flip back over to chapter 3. We'll quickly kind of move through this. Chapter 3, verse 14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Again, kind of a non-technical word for missionaries, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. The word that we read appointed is a Greek word that literally means he made or he created. 
12 so that they might be him. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus is creating his church, his particular chosen people, so that they might be with him. And this is not simply because Jesus needs friends, people to kind of carry his stuff around. This is at the absolute center of a life of a Jesus follower, to be with Jesus. Jesus brings us into relationship with him so that we might enjoy him and make him known. If, if you have a relationship with somebody that you love or care about, you understand this principle, right? Because the person that you love or the person that loves you, you want to be with them. You want to enjoy them. You want to enjoy your time with them. And you can't help it but make it known, right? Facebook recognizes They even create a particular status for you, Right? You know this. And so Jesus brings us into relationship so that we might enjoy him and make him known. Now, in this scenario, in this text, at this time in the first century, Jesus is physically present. He's, he's there. He's with them. But through his word and through his spirit, Jesus is present with us today, which is why we're always reminded of and encouraged to the means by which Jesus is with us. The preaching and the reading of his word, the study of his word. If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. Read it. Spend time with it. Spend time in it. Understand it. It is present in the songs that we sing. We're very particular about the songs that we choose, that they would say true things about God, that it would stir up in our heart an enjoyment of him, an appreciation for him, stir up an affection for him. In our times of communion, which we'll celebrate in just a moment, in our times of prayer, our individual prayer and our corporate prayer, in our shared life together, our community is as followers of Jesus, in our generosity and in our serving, and our giving of our time, and our resources, all these things are the means by which the church is centered, or with, anchored in, Jesus. Let me ask you, where do those things that I listed, where do they ordinarily occur? Here, in the church gathered, right? So this gathering, this church, the, the, the work of the Spirit, it centers us in Christ. So if you stay away from this gathering, and this is not just a commercial on church attendance, but it is a teaching on what it is to be a follower of Jesus and what it is to be centered in him. If you miss this, if you allow other things in your calendar to kind of trump this time gathered, you are missing out on something very significant in the life of a follower of Jesus, to be centered in Christ. He calls his church, he centers his church, and lastly, we see that he commissions his church. Verse 14, we're sent out to preach. Jesus is telling his followers with me, he said, look, I want you to be with me. I want you to speak of the good news of who I am and what I'm doing, what I will do, what I'll complete. I want you to stand against evil. There's two things, the proclamation of good news and the demonstration of good news. That's what followers of Jesus should be doing in this world, in your life. You should be proclaiming the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, and you should be demonstrating it in your work, in your school, in your home, in your neighborhoods. We see from this text something amazing. God calls people from the nations to go out to the nations to preach the good news of who Jesus is, what he's done, and will he, what he will complete. The church is called by Christ, to be with Christ, to go for Christ. Called by Christ, to be with Christ, to go for Christ. That is the mission of the church. It's the mission of ordinary people, ordinary people like me and you, who are called by and who are called by God to put on display an extraordinary God, to proclaim the excellencies of who he is. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, I thank you for... Um, 
this text this morning. God, that reminds us of, of so many truths of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. God, that it wasn't something that we earned. God, you didn't look at us and say, oh man, I really, really need them on my team. But God, in your mercy, in your grace, in your love, you call us by name. God, I, we are humbled by that this morning. God, we confess and repent of times where that makes us arrogant or prideful. God, I pray that it would take us to a place this morning in our hearts and our minds and our lives, God, where we would just be a people of thanksgiving and that our demonstration or proclamation of who you are, God, would be just an obvious and natural overflow in our lives. God, as we go into this time of communion now, we thank you for um, your son, Jesus his finished work on the cross. It's in his name we pray, amen.